This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Anthony Davies, who's a professor of economics at Duquesne University. Anthony, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to get started with a little background. Um, I'm curious how you became interested in economics and then how you ended up as a professional economist. Yeah, I, I kind of fell into it. I always had a love of mathematics and um, kind of got attracted to things, you know, being a kid, I'm interested in space and this kind of stuff. So I said, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And my mother said, absolutely not. There are no jobs for astrophysicists. Be an econ major. I said, what's economics? She said, she said, just go study it. So I did. And I ended up liking it. So I, yeah, the morals of that story is listen to your mother. Um, I ended up as an academic because um, I studied economics. I, I loved it. I enjoy being in school. And so when you're done with college and you want to stay in school, what do you do? You go to graduate school. So I went to graduate school and did PhD and I still wanted to stay in school. And what do you do at that point? Because, you know, you're done Well, you go be a professor. So that's how I ended up where I am. So I take it you weren't interested in, for whatever reason, in um, working in industry for the government as an economist, something like that? Um, well, not really. Um, I've worked in industry, but as an entrepreneur um, and you know, I've got this entrepreneurial bug. So every five to seven years, I run off and start a company. And that's that's my industry experience. Um, the Probably the biggest company I've worked with is, uh, I was one of the founding employees of Parabon Computation, which does uh, super computation. They've been in the news for a number of years now. There was actually a TV show done on the company. They um, They take DNA from crime scenes, run it through their supercomputer and build a picture of the person. So they can actually generate a picture of the person's face just from a DNA sample. And they've solved a number of crimes uh, this way. Fascinating. So that sounds, uh, that sounds a little eerie in the wrong hands, but cool nonetheless. <laughs> yes. Uh, I wanted to get started with um, talking about some of the stuff that you work on and, and or have been warning us about for a while. So we're in the middle of Inflation like I've never seen before. I mean, I'm, I'm 38, so I'm not that old, but in my lifetime, it's reminiscent of the 70s and the early 80s. Um, right. And economists have been warning about this for a long time. I, I remember thinking, you know, watching the debt climb in the George W. Bush administration, then Obama, and then Trump, and now Biden. Um, for the longest time, I just thought, well, this is like a chicken little routine with these economists who are warning us about, um, you know, fiscal discipline and spending too much money, too much debt. Printing, printing currency, all this sort of stuff. Uh, it sort of sounded like a chicken little routine. You know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The sky is always falling, but it never seemed to fall. Right. And then here we are. So we're in 2022 with record inflation. And I know everybody on the right likes to blame Biden. And not that he's not a part of this, he definitely is. But I'm curious, um, what's your overall sort of bird's eye take to begin with? This doesn't stop with Biden, right? This goes oh, no. back. No, it doesn't. And, you know, I, I would attribute little of this to Biden. Um, I would also attribute little of it to Trump. 
Um, and, you know, if you want to attribute a lot to Biden, I think conversely, you're going to have to also attribute a lot to Trump. I think what's going on here is not it's independent of whoever it is that's in the office. It's a systemic problem. So it doesn't matter who wins the presidential election. We're going to have this same problem over and over again. The problem stems ultimately from the fact that the um, federal government is no longer constrained. Uh, it hasn't been for starting 100 years ago and over the course of the past century, it's become less and less constrained to the point now where politicians will overtly say, elect me and I'll give you free stuff. And of course, where does the free stuff come from? It comes from other people who are being taxed. And what this does is it creates a, an incentive for politicians to one-up each other. Because if you and I are running for against each other for an office, we're each offering more and more stuff than the other one to, we get, to get elected. And that leaves you in a space where the government is now spending far more than than it can afford because you know i get elected for spending money i don't get elected for taxing you so how do i manage to spend all this money i borrow well we got away with that for a long while and we reached a point and i think it came about during the the start of the covid lockdowns where the government had borrowed so much money that it pretty much ran out of places to borrow. I don't want to say it actually ran out of places to borrow, but what was happening is as the government borrowed more and more, the rate of its borrowing exceeded the rate at which people, businesses, foreign governments were willing to lend. And so you've got this this problem of where does the extra money come from? And I think what changed with the age of COVID is that the Federal Reserve stepped up and it started providing this extra money that the government needed to borrow that wasn't out there. And how does it do that? It does it by printing. And that's what's, that's what's leading to this uh, massive inflation that we're starting to see. So there was a slight gap in the story you told. And I'm, I'm curious if you could fill it in for us. So on the one hand, your story started with politicians one-upping each other, a sort of goodies arms race, right? Where I give goodies right. and you give goodies. And I. And then you talked about the Fed, but can't the Fed just tell the um, politicians, hey, look, we just can't do it, right? This is bad economics. It's bad for the economy. We're, we're heading down a, a monetary policy that you don't want to head down. Why doesn't the Fed just tell politicians, you know, take a long walk off a short pier, not doing it? Yeah, and you know, in theory, the Fed is independent and can do that. In practice, these are human beings and they're subject to the same sorts of political pressures that other human any human being is subject to. Um, I mean, ultimately, the Fed was was created by Congress and Congress could dissolve it at any time. So ultimately, I guess in you know, it does have to answer to to Congress in that sense. Um, but consider the, the people who, on the one hand, the people who get appointed to those positions are going to be, on average, people who say things that politicians want. I'm never going to get appointed to that position. Even if, even if I were a Nobel Prize winning economist, I would never get appointed to a position at the Fed. Why? Because I say the exact opposite of the things that politicians want me to say. 
uh, which is, no, we shouldn't be printing all this money. We shouldn't be facilitating this. So that's what's happening on the one hand. On the other hand, I think the Fed got lulled into a sense of, of false security. That is, we've gone through decades now of deficit spending, the deficits rising, 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 and printing of the money, and we weren't seeing inflation. Inflation was really stable, you know, 2%, 3% maybe over the course of decades. And this gave rise to this, you know, modern monetary theory, kind of the extreme, the idea that you can print as much as you want, and really you don't have to worry too much about inflation, um, you know, and if it does become a problem, you could just tax it away. Don't, don't worry too much about it. And I think, I think what happened was we had an economy that was resilient enough that we could get away with that. Um, there were plenty of people who were willing to, to, to loan to us. We had a burgeoning economy. But when you hit the skids, like we did with COVID, and all of a sudden, you know, we're, not, we're producing less than we were producing before, and there are people who were loaning to us now are not willing to loan to us. All of a sudden, we've got to do some serious printing, and now we're starting to see the ramifications of that with the inflation. Why didn't this problem happen sooner? And the reason I'm asking is, in other words, why didn't people, forget the Fed for a second, like other lenders, why didn't they see this coming? I mean, hell, at 20 trillion, I'd be worried, let alone, we're at 30 now, I think, 30 plus something. Yeah, you would think so. And you can go back to when I was in college, um, Reagan was president. And that's where you started to see a lot of the first deficit spending. I mean, it's pennies compared to what we're doing today. But back at the time, it was it was a lot. And people said exactly what you're saying. Oh, my God, you know, these deficits, we can't do this. And yet the sky didn't fall. We pushed in nothing gave and things were all right. So we pushed further and nothing gave and things were all right. And it's kind of like, if you want to think about the analogy, you know, you've got a, a household income and you've got a credit card and you start charging and people say to you, you shouldn't be doing that, but you charge, but it's okay. Cause you can afford the monthly payments and everything's all right. And people tell you, no, don't do more, but you go ahead and do more, but it's okay. Cause you can afford the monthly payments and that's okay until you reach a point where you hit your limit and the credit card company says, no, that's enough. You don't get any more. Now you've got a problem all of a sudden. How much does this have to do with just being in a low inflationary environment where you can get away with printing money and borrowing money because the interest payments and the interest on the debt is relatively low. It's manageable. It's not consuming your budget. Like, is yeah. that just a product of low inflation environment? Yeah, it's a, it is a, a it, well, it's a product of low interest rates. Um, you know, and the Fed has held interest rates low for you know, pretty much as many decades as we've had low inflation. And so the federal government now pays like two and a half percent interest on its debt. This is going to be a problem um, moving forward because the Fed has now been painted into a corner. On the one hand, the cure for inflation is to cut back on the money supply. But when you cut back on the money supply, you drive interest rates up. And when interest rates go up, the federal government, you know, owes $30 trillion, just a two percentage point increase in interest rates, two percentage points, would cost the federal government in annual interest expense as much as the Department of Defense. So just that two percentage point increase is like adding another Department of Defense to the federal budget. Um, that's the magnitude that we're talking about. So now the, the Fed's in this weird place where if it does something to control inflation, which is good for the people, good for the economy, it drives interest rates up, which is bad for the federal government. But if it doesn't do anything, that's good for the federal government, but it's bad for us because we've got inflation.
So why can't we just um, print more money, right? I mean, <laughs> you need more money to buy things, right? Things cost more. So we'll just chase that dragon all the way down the cave. Or just keep printing, right. money, printing money, printing money. What's the problem? And this is this is where the the MMT modern monetary theory people I think go off the rails, and and a lot of people go off the rails here as well, in that they they get fixated on the dollars. You say, well, we can just print more dollars. We have more dollars, and that's a good thing. You. We were talking earlier about California cutting everybody a check for $1,500. We hand out dollars, right? And and we miss the point that the dollars are simply a tool that we use to transfer ownership of goods and services. It's the goods and services that matter. And you can print as many dollars as you want, but if you don't have more goods and services, people aren't any better off. Yeah, you can, you can drop a bunch of pallets of cash on Africa or parts of poor parts of Asia or what have you go yeah. back in time. It's not going to make them any richer. I mean, maybe they could burn it for heat, but I don't, other than that, I don't know what they're going to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. You know, picture, picture a city, uh, you know, in, in a natural disaster, a hurricane comes through and there's nothing to be had. There's no food, there's no water, there's no electricity. You know, you can have billions of dollars. In, it's not going to help you. Now, if you had lots of money, you can get out of the city. Okay, yeah, but to remain in the city in that environment of few goods and services, it doesn't matter how many dollars you have because it's not the dollars you need, it's the goods and services you need. So this sounds like the story you've been telling so far is a combination of bad fiscal and bad monetary policy, right? Where you're yeah. spending too much money and you're also printing money to, to fund the spending. Do you think that's a product of the fact that raising taxes on people is not very popular? Um, I, I think all of the things you described are symptoms of a disease. We've got bad fiscal policy, we've got bad monetary policy, and, and these two things are, are, are rising in part because it's not popular to tax people. But all of those things, all three of those combined, arise from what you might call, I don't want to use the word policy, but a bad politics. And by politics, I don't mean Democrats and Republicans. I mean the political structure that we have. And the political structure that we have evolved is one in which the government is unlimited. It can do anything it wants. And so long as that's the case, you're necessarily going to be in this place where, no, they're not going to raise taxes because they'll get voted out. But yes, they are going to spend money because they'll get voted in. And that leads in one direction. That's infinite spending. Of course, you can't get to infinity. So what happens is you would get to bankruptcy. Uh, what do you mean by unlimited? You mean in terms of on the fiscal and monetary side? Yeah, wait, well, it didn't, I mean, unlimited on the political side, but it. But the problem ends up being that on the spending side. Um, and by unlimited, I mean the following. The, the federal government, if you read the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, has eight powers. There are eight things there the federal government is authorized to do. And starting about the 1920s, we decided, we as a, as a people, that we didn't like that limitation. We wanted the federal government to do all sorts of things that it's not authorized to do. The first big one was Social Security. And here we are now doing, you know, um, national health care through the Affordable Care Act. We're talking about um, forgiving student loans. So they shouldn't be giving student loans in the first place. None of that's constitutional. Now, and people will say, well, that's an, that's an old fashioned view of the world. The constitution needs to change for a modern day. Okay, I get all that. That's fine. That's not my complaint. 
My complaint is that the change we made in embracing the modern world was not to say, okay, the federal government can do these 12 things instead of these eight things. The change we made was to say the federal government could do pretty much anything it wants. And once you do that, you now have 538, however many elected people there are in Washington, who now have the, the authority, the power to spend an infinite amount of money. I'm curious, though, if that's just a product of the fact that constitutions are only in effective insofar as there are societal political norms that him people in, voters in, politicians in. And if you don't have those norms and the voters don't back them up or reinforce them, you can write whatever you want on a piece of paper and call it a constitution. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, you're, abs you're absolutely right. There's nothing magical about the piece of paper, the constitution. And that's, it's not the piece of paper I point to, it's the people that we decided as a society, we're going to ignore the document, we're gonna do these other things. Well, it turns out that the list of limitations in the document were there for a good reason. And when we abandoned them, we created these problems that we're now experiencing. It took a hundred years to get to where we are. But on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, it took a long time to get here. So the problem must not be, th be that bad. On the other hand, you could say it took a long time to get here. It's a hundred years worth of problem building up. It's a huge problem. Yeah, there, there are days when I'm optimistic and there are days when I'm very pessimistic about the future. Um, and you're, we're kind of getting ahead of, I kind of want to talk about this a little bit later, but we're there. What I worry about is voters. Mm. Voters want stuff. I, I get why. I, I mean, it's, it's rational in a sense. If you can get something for free and someone else pays for it, why not? On sure. the one hand... But then this this results in a you know a series of like nested collective action problems where it's like well I'm not going to give they're not going to give their stuff why should I have my stuff so people will complain right. you ask voters is debt too high they'll say yes and then you'll ask them okay what do you want to cut nobody wants to cut anything right. right and I kind of wonder at this point if it's a lost cause I mean thirty trillion dollars is what what is that like the GDP of Europe and Russia combined or something I mean it's just it's it's huge amount yeah. of money. Yeah, it, it is. And I, in one sense, I think, I think you're right to say it's a lost cause. And, and here's why. Nobody has an individual incentive to fix it. We can all, all of us agree that it needs to be fixed. But the fact is, I'll give you an example in my own case. I've long been saying Social Security should be dismantled. It's, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's, it's going bankrupt. Social Security will tell you that itself. It's going to require significant increase in taxes to keep it going, these sorts of things. And, and I can say all of that, and I, I believe it 100%. And yet, when I retire and I have the opportunity to collect Social Security, absolutely I will. Now, you can look at that and say, well, that's hypocritical, to which I will respond, well, hang on. I could say, all right, I'm not going to collect Social Security because that's contributing to the problem, and that's going to have absolutely zero effect on Social Security, right? My, my not taking my Social Security benefits will extend the life of Social Security by fractions of a second. And so I'm left, from a practical perspective, I'm left in this situation where I know this is a stupid thing, it shouldn't exist, and yet I can, you know, accept it and, and, and I'm better off, or 
I cannot accept it. I'm worse off and I haven't solved anything. I haven't improved anything. The only way to, to fix this problem is through some massive collective action. It's not one of us. It's not even a substantial minority of us. It's a super majority of us who get together and say enough is enough. We've got to change the rules. Yeah, that, that makes me even more pessimistic when you put it that way. I mean, the sort of thoughts you were having occur to me when I think about things like climate change or the debt. I just think, well, one individual, you can't, you're not going to make a dent in this problem. It's in that sense a lost cause. So why, why would voters change? I mean, it, it, I guess what I'm saying is, would we have to go through like a massive amount of pain? Would we have to go through like yeah. the Great Depression 2.0 before people would wake up? What does it take? Well, yes and no. I think vo voters aren't going to change for, for the reason I just gave you. It's rational for them not to change. It doesn't make any sense for them not to change. Um, what's required here is for the government to bump up against the laws of mathematics. That simply the math doesn't work anymore. You can't, it's not possible to continue. I don't mean politically, I mean economically financially, mathematically, you can't continue. And at that point, the federal government's bankrupt. And what does that look like? Well, it'll, it'll look like, um, on the one hand, the government uh, devolving things to the states. So it's going to say, look, we can't handle Social Security or Medicare anymore. Uh, what we're going to do is spin it off. In Pennsylvania, you can have your version of Social Security and Medicare. You, you operate it yourself. You collect the taxes. You run the whole thing. California, you can have your version. Texas, you can have your version. And, and what will happen is as the federal government devolves its responsibilities like that to the states, you return to the model that the founders designed originally, which is... The, the original model did not say there should be no social security. It said the federal government can't do social security. The states are perfectly fine to do that. And people will look, I'll say this to people and they'll say, well, yeah, but we're talking about the states. They're small compared to the federal government. And people forget that our individual states are as large as European countries. And if you can point to Sweden and say, well, Sweden does healthcare right. Well, then Pennsylvania can as well, because they're the same size. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm wondering if there's another mechanism here for doing this. And I'm wondering if John Roberts laid this legal mechanism out whereby you don't, you have mandates for all these services and you don't call them mandates, you call them taxes. And then you have people go out and buy these things, right? Whether it's, you know, various kinds of protections or, I mean, you could probably privatize law enforcement, firefighting, all kinds of things just by requiring yeah. people to buy private stuff with, with a mandate or a tax hanging over their head. So that'd be yeah, another that, route maybe to go. I'm curious what you Yeah, that, that might, I think there are two things here. One is, is this combination private public where the government mandates something says, all right, everybody, like it does with cars, everybody has to have car insurance, depending on what state you're in. But the state doesn't provide the car insurance. It simply says you have to have it. And so the, the market generates the, the product. And so you get kind of the best of both worlds. On the one hand, the, we get what we wanted from the state, which is the state ensures that everybody has car insurance. On the other hand, we get it in, in, in an efficient way because it's handled through the marketplace and competition. That, that I think works okay at a state level. It scares me at a federal level because 
at a federal level, particularly if the mandates are being passed on to the states. So you have federal politicians now passing laws saying states must require that their people purchase insurance. All of a sudden, I think you've got a worse problem we have now because you've got federal politicians being elected on the basis of promises. Elect me and I'll force your state to do the following things. And the federal government doesn't have to carry the cost of it. The cost gets pushed on to the states. I think the best thing to do here, let the states do their individual things. And if Pennsylvania decides that people should have health care, it'll say everybody's got to have health care. If, you know, Wyoming says they don't, then they don't. And when you govern that way, you achieve something that we haven't discussed yet. And that is you achieve competition at the political level, like we have competition at the market level. That is, you have 50 different states with different rules and different you know, procedures and, and taxes and benefits and all this stuff, and people can move between them. If I like better what's happening in Virginia than I like what's happening in Pennsylvania, I have an incentive to move. And that incentive to move does two things. One, it brings tax revenue to Virginia and it denies Pennsylvania tax revenue. And all of a sudden, Pennsylvania now has to compete for people, for businesses, just like businesses compete for customers. That's a really cool thing. We don't have that. We understand at a market level that monopolies are bad. And yet at a political level, we embrace them. We say the federal government is a political monopoly and we're constantly using it to do things. Actually, I have a Substack article writing about this. How we seem to have a problem with monopolies in the marketplace for understandable reasons. Um, and there's different types of monopolies. Some of monopolies are they're monopolies for a reason because they're good at supplying products at good prices and stuff. Um, but when for some reason when it comes to the government, it's like, oh yeah, it's fine. It, you know, monopoly and political power and military power, it's fine. Nothing to go wrong. So yeah, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that um, requiring using mandates would be like a recipe for something like rent seeking, or it, it wouldn't end well for politicians to be like, I'll, I'll make Maryland you know, force most folks to buy this or folks force folks to buy that. And that would right. be well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You the, the federal politicians would have all the benefit, all the upside they have now to offering free stuff and not any of the downside, albeit a small downside that exists now, even that small downside would go away. No, no, you're, you're, you're right. You convinced me. Um, there is a problem though with um, devolving things to the States and part of it is there's this distinction between the official debt. I don't just mean federal debt. I mean like debt we hold as the United States and then mm -hmm. like, you know, um, unfunded liabilities. Right. Which when you include those, I think it's like 180 trillion or some, it's some astronomical yeah, it's, number. It's so large that it really doesn't matter that we're not sure what the number is. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Right. Um, because I know well, there's a lot of states Illinois is an example that have problems with their budgets too. So if you just, you know, hand this off, uh, Social Security, and Medicare, say to Illinois, isn't Illinois just now the one that sunk? Yeah. Um, yes. If you hand off Social Security in its current form to all the states, you don't you don't achieve anything. You just take you know a problem that's size x and you have 50 versions of the problem that's size x over 50 right it's the same thing the benefit to devolving it this to the states comes when you say to the states okay you're handling social security but you handle it any way you like in up to and including eliminating the thing 
or expanding it, whatever you want. And now it's different because you have 50 approaches to a problem. The problem being, what do we do with retirees? What do we do with people who can't work? We have 50 approaches to the problem rather than 50 versions of one solution. Would that be politically feasible though? I mean, I'm worried that a lot of the reasons we have these problems is because politicians don't want to touch them. That's where, that's where the mathematics comes in. You're right. It's not politically feasible, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen because there is no alternative. So when they come with the pitchforks and the torches, uh, you can just be like, <laughs> well, economics is forcing us to, how do you explain this to people though? I mean, it, I get what you're saying. Look, the, you know, the economics is the economics or there are certain economic laws. It's just mathematics. You can argue with it until you're blown in the face. It's not going to change anything. But tell that to a voter who doesn't understand this, right? I mean, good luck right. with that conversation. Yeah, and and I I find I find that that voters are voters are becoming more interested in this problem, uh, particularly now in, in with the inflation. They're starting to ask questions that they never asked before. Why is this happening? What can we do about it? And and so is the as we approach, you know, kind of the inflection point where, where things become obviously bad, I think more and more voters are, are starting to ask the right questions. And, and there are people who don't want to hear the answers and they get a lot of media attention, both mainstream media and social media, but they are a minority, a small minority of the people. I think that from my experience, the vast majority of people, um, are interested and they are not um, zealous in their whatever in some preconceived belief that government is good or government is evil. How do you feel personally about this? I mean, you've been working on this issue for a long time. I'm guessing this mostly falls on deaf ears historically up until you know, just recently. And now people are like putting their heads up and asking people like you, like, what the hell's going on? And you're like, <laughs> right. I've been talking about this for years. You're now finally listening. It must feel great. Yeah, it is so vindicated. It is excited that you know. It's exciting that people are starting to listen. Um, I'm. You described yourself as as pessimistic earlier. I'm really optimistic. Actually, um, we're going to go through a period of of pain. I don't think it's going to be pitchforks and rioting in the streets, anything like that. Um, but it could be, it could be pain on the, on the level of what we experienced during the lockdowns of, you know, there, these random shortages, you can't get things that you need. It's hard to find a job or whatever it is that over an extended period of time, what extended means, I don't know, five years, maybe 10 years at the outside, something like that. What, but what makes me optimistic is what comes out the other end. Because what we're talking about here is, is not a breakdown of society. We have all the same people. We have all the same technology, the infrastructure, the buildings, the machinery, the resources. Everything we have five, 10 years from now is what we have today, what we had five years, 10 years ago. It's all there, our productive capacity. What's changed when the government actually does hit bankruptcy is expectations that there's a group of people who were told that they were going to receive certain amount of money in their retirement. And now there's some question about that. 
There's another group of people who are told that they have to pay into Social Security. And there's some question they may not actually have to, right? There's all kinds of all kinds of things that people were expecting to happen long term, they're going to discover are not happening. And now we've all got to readjust ourselves. That's going to be good for some people. It's going to be bad for a lot of people. But all of our productive capacity is still there. We're capable of producing all the things that we produced before. It's a matter of, of having to, to deal with this adjustment. And when we come out the other end, whatever we're talking, five years, 10 years down the road, when we come out the other end, we're in much better shape. It's kind of like, in fact, it's exactly like the household that finds itself mired in credit card debt and it can't make the payments. And so what does it do? It tightens its belt and says, okay, we're going to have to live on ramen noodles for a while. And they get this thing paid down and takes them five years to get it paid down or 10 years to get it paid down, whatever it is. And they come out the other end and all of a sudden now they're in way better shape than they were before. I mean, just paid off a bunch of credit card debt and feeling great about it. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. And yeah. Having learned my lesson, not doing that again. Bad idea. Um, yeah. So what is the federal... Um, what does a federal bankruptcy look like? It just means we can't borrow money anymore. Where does the Federal Reserve fit into all this? What does that picture look like? It looks it looks like one of two things. Um, now, first off, politicians will never use the word bankruptcy unless they're trying to get the incumbent out of office, right? Um, but what it's going to look like is one of two things. Either significant reduction in government spending or significant inflation my and I, i've been saying this for years prior to the inflation we're feeling now i've been saying repeatedly that for the government to continue on the path it's been going down we would have to have sustained inflation in the five to ten percent range like forever now people clearly are not going to be happy with that right and so so it's this question of what are we going to do it's probably my guess is it's it's going to be a combination of the two there's going to be some significant uh belt tightening at the federal level there's going to be some you know inflation i don't think we're talking about 50 percent inflation or anything ridiculous like that i would be even surprised if it went to 20 percent. i i think we're talking five to ten percent for a while a while being a number of years until the government can get its situation order now let, let me give you some perspective on this. The, the, key, the key to getting our house in order is getting that federal budget balanced. Get that balanced and it stops the bleeding. We can now, it doesn't do anything about the debt, but if the debt just held constant, over time the economy grows and we can grow to the point that we can manage the debt. You ju just quit making it worse. The way to quit making it worse is to have a balanced, not a balanced budget, but balanced budgets for the foreseeable future. The way to do that is cut federal spending about 10% right now, and then hold it constant. Don't even increase it for inflation. Hold it constant for about five years. At the end, at the end of the fifth year, you'll have a balanced budget. And from that point forward, you can grow the government. You can grow the budget. Just don't grow it faster than the economy, and you'll continue to have balanced budgets. So this, this recipe I just told you, it's got some serious pain up front. 10% cut in the government spending is gargantuan. And it's some 
hangover for the next five years. You got to hold the government in stasis for five years, but that's it. At the end of the five years, you're good. You've stopped the bleeding. Now you haven't completely solved the problem, but you have, you've taken, you've done the, the lion's share of solving the problem. The only way politicians in Washington are going to do that is with a gun to their head. <laughs> yep. That's right. And that brings us back to the original problem, which is it's a political failure. Yeah. yeah. What what is public choice? First of all, what is public choice? Because I know you work in this area. Public what choice does it have is to say about how to solve the situation. Like what what advice or recommendations would it provide, if, if any? Public choice is a field of economics that takes what we understand about human behavior and incentives and constraints and we apply that to people who are in the public sector we apply it to politicians we apply it to bureaucrats in an attempt to predict their behavior in the same way that we predict the behavior of consumers and businesses in the private sector and one of the things that that public sector economics would say is is what i've already <clears throat> what i've already mentioned to you which is the the key here is to introduce the same competitive forces in the public sector that we have in the private sector. There's nothing magical about the private sector that makes it better than the public sector. The, the thing that makes the private sector tend to work better than the public sector is simply or is two things. One, there are lots of producers of things. And two, consumers get to choose. I can choose to go to Walmart versus Amazon versus Best Buy. And because I can choose, those three businesses have got to compete with each other. And it forces them to be hyper-concerned about serving me, doing for me the best they can at the lowest cost. That doesn't happen in government because, A, there aren't a lot of providers. There's the federal government. And B, I don't have the ability to walk away. I can't say, no, you know what? I don't like Social Security. It's not working out for me. I think I won't participate. No, that's, that's just not an option. You are going to participate. You don't have the ability to walk away. So if, if we could dev devolve our, and I think this is what will happen, devolve our governing to the 50 states, now we have the ability to walk away. You could say, I don't like what's going on here. I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah, we saw that during COVID, I think, with school shutdowns and tax codes and law and order you know, nonsense. And we're seeing this now with... Um, the recent overturn of Roe v. Wade, which just returns the issue to the states. So you can sort of right. pick whether you want to be a more, you know, go to a more pro-abortion state or less pro-abortion state. I kind of wonder if, if ironically, what all this is going to end up doing is just reinforcing the, the wisdom of federalism. The idea being that a lot of things should be devolved to the states and you can sort of, you have these experiments in democracy to see what works and what doesn't. I mean, I think, Florida versus yeah. California, it's, you know... <laughs> I think so. And I, I think we've learned, we as a society over the past, you know, whatever, however long we've been around, two and a half centuries, we've learned a couple of things. We've learned on the one hand that strictly limited government doesn't work. And what I mean by that is we had strictly lim limited government where the government had these things listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. This is what you're allowed to do. And we had states enslaving people. And there's not much the federal government could do about that because that you know handling regulating slavery is not one of the enumerated powers so i'm sorry federal government you can't deal with that and all of a sudden we have a problem that culminates in the civil war of course where we say no this is not working but we then go to the opposite extreme 
of strictly unlimited government. And that gives us the problem we have now of, of government that, that, be, that goes bankrupt. So I think where we end up is that we've since we've tried both extremes, we'll have a better appreciation of, of I don't know what word I should put to it, quasi-limited government. That is a, a government that, a federal government that is limited in a strict way. However, a federal government that is charged with defending people's natural rights, regardless of what the states want. You might think one of the downs or one of the byproducts of you know lockdowns or inflation is a return of you know the, the the popularity of federalism, sort of like Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine sort of brings the relevance of NATO roaring back. Is this like this unintended byproduct? Which yeah. brings me to like people like Janet Yellen. Um, I mean, this goes back to Ellen Greenspan. I'm not just picking on her. Ben Bernanke's in this mix. These are you know Fed chairs. She's now the Sec Treasury Secretary. She said the other day that she did not see inflation being this bad. And I thought, but now she now they've got a handle on it, and they're sure that it's not going to last that long. It's it's going to fizzle out in a year or two. And I thought, you know, for for a group of folks who make so many mistakes. They sure are awfully confident in their current series of predictions. <laughs> right. You would think having, I mean, maybe maybe I've just read too much Hayek, I don't know. But you would think there's a sort of conceit here that, I mean, he called it the fatal conceit. But I mean, if I if I was like, you know, screw up after screw up, after, like, I just make prediction after prediction, it's wrong, 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 wrong. My confidence would go down in my ability to predict things. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, and I think one of the things we have to keep in mind here is um, when the Secretary of the Treasury or, or the Chair of the Fed says things, they aren't necessarily saying things they believe. And I'm not sure that they can, that, I'm not sure that they can always say things they believe because their words impact other people. So if, for example, Jen, Janet Yellen were to say, yeah, we didn't understand inflation. You know what? We still don't. God knows what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, what? everyone's going to panic. They're going to, you know, pull their monies out of the bank, buy as much hard assets as they could. It's going to be a huge upheaval to the economy simply because of what she said. So she has an incentive to, to project an image of someone who's in control, who knows what's going on, just so people don't panic. I would buy that line. I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to buy that line because she can say what she wants, but the, the proof's in the pudding, so to speak. I don't think you know what's going on. I don't think you have to draw on inflation. I just look around. It's like, listen to her words, not my lying eyes. Yeah, I, I think you're right. But remember, she only needs to make her, in terms of job, how should I say, in terms of her job performance, she only needs to make the argument to the, the politicians who appoint her. She doesn't need to make that argument to the people. And the politicians who, who appoint her don't know any more than she does. Furthermore, they have a vested interest in her, her they have a vested interest in certain policies. For example, go back to this modern monetary theory. Stephanie Kelton is the economist who, who's a big proponent of mon modern monetary theory. And most well, of the if economic, I could, if I can ask yeah. you to tell us what what is modern modern monetary policy? Mo modern monetary theory is oh, is theory, yeah the premise that you can 
you can print as much, I say you, the, the United States government can print as much money as it wants to pay for whatever it's doing. So we shouldn't have to worry about deficits because we just print the money. And to which traditional economists would say, well, hang on, how about inflation? And the modern monetary theorists would say, well, you don't have to worry that much about inflation because the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency. This is one of the things I'll tell you. Well, all that means, reserve currency means that, that people and businesses and foreign um, governments hold dollars as an asset. All that means is that when we inflate the dollar, we don't feel the full pain of the inflation. The full pain is spread over the entire globe. Yeah, because it's under somebody's mattress in like Greece or something, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, some foreign country who's holding dollars now has to deal with the pain of, of the inflation. But then but the modern monetary... But doesn't that only work to the extent that we haven't fully saturated those other areas? Well, yeah, it, it only works to the extent that, um, that the dollar remains a reserve currency. Because reserve currency status is not something that's legally imposed. It's something the market determines. That people, have, people governments, and, and companies worldwide have determined that the dollar has a pretty stable value. And so they're happy to invest in it. They're happy to hold U.S. dollars. But the minute it ceases to be the case, people will stop, foreigners will stop holding U.S. dollars. It will cease to be a reserve currency. And if you want examples of this, you know, look at the pound sterling. Once upon a time, it was the global currency. No longer. This is what happens when you inflate your currency. People stop holding it. It ceases to be a reserve currency. And so the modern monetary theorists will go a step further and say, well, yeah, but you know what? If if that happens and you still and you still start to have inflation problems, you can simply tax. You tax to pull the excess dollars out of the economy. And so now you don't you don't have inflation problems. And that's a bait and a switch. It's a bait and a switch because what they've just painted is a picture of on the one hand the government printing money to buy whatever it wants. On the other hand, raising taxes to siphon the excess money back out of the economy so that we don't get inflation. And what you have done in effect is reduce the amount of goods and services that people get to buy and increase the amount of goods and services that government needs to buy. So we have fewer houses, we have more border walls, we have fewer avocados and more hand grenades. You might have the same GDP, but what's what constitutes that GDP is very different. So this is modern monetary theory. And we, I go to Stephanie Kelton, who's the big proponent of this thing, and she's an economist that most people would never have heard of, except for the fact that modern monetary theory proposes the exact policy that politicians want, which is the freedom to be able to print as much money as they want. Oh, and if there's justification of raising taxes, yeah, we'll take that too. So she gets press because she's saying things that politician that support politicians' preferred policies. And so too here, you go back to the question of Janet Yellen and her, her job performance. As long as she's saying things that politicians can hold up and say, the experts say that our policy is the right policy. That's what they want, and she keeps her job. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit here as we're wrapping up. I have two questions that I ask all my guests. Um, two standard questions. Uh, the first one is about failure. I'm curious if you could talk about a time in your personal life or your 
professional life where you failed in a you know vast or spectacular way and what you learned from it yeah um as i had mentioned i've started a number of businesses over my life and um some have been successful some have been abysmal failures um and you know one in particular was an abysmal failure um lost a lot of money for me for my investors um and and i think the thing the thing that i learned there if i want to think about general general lessons is one to be very um how should i say respectful of my ignorance to not go in saying well yeah i have all the answers and this is the way we do things and two to to liberally rely on others and those two lessons fortunately i learned them very early in life have served me well moving forward doesn't mean i didn't have any more failures but the failures were less spectacular <laughs> well that's fair i have a hard time doing that too um helping asking for help it's not fun uh and my last question is about legacy so i'm curious what you want people to say about you and your work in 100 years or to put this a little differently what do you want on your tombstone yeah those are to me two different questions um I would say in terms of, of my legacy, it seems to be the case that my comparative advantage is, is communicating. It seems to be the thing that, that people enjoy most of all the things that I produce. And, and so I would want to be remembered. Um, I would want to be remembered as, and I, I hesitate in saying this, so make sure, understand, I'm going to give you a big footnote. I'd like to be remembered like Friedman and, and Sowell and Walter Williams. Now, they're far greater economists than I am. But what I mean by that is each one of them had this ability to communicate to people who were not experts complex things in simple ways, and particularly in the case of Freedom, who, Friedman, who's my hero, to be able to tell someone to their face that they're wrong, do it with a smile on your face, and the other guy is thankful for it at the end. He was he was generous and kind in in his teaching, in his debate. That's what I would leave for my legacy. The ability to explain complex things in ordinary, everyday language is an underrated skill, and it's a very valuable one. I agree. Anthony, it was really great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a blast.